Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to talk with scientists and reporters who've been researching and reporting at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. The Institute's goal, as they say, is to increase and diffuse knowledge about the past, present, and future of tropical biodiversity and its relevance to human welfare. For they say that uh, tropical forests and reefs represent a small portion of the Earth's surface, 2% and less than 1% respectively, but contain most of the planet's biodiversity. And uh, so we bring in um, UPR News Director Sherry Quinn. Sherry, thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good morning. And uh, I should know that you've been to this institute in Panama, right? I have been to this this island. Uh, We also uh, welcome in USU doctoral student and UPR science reporter Colleen Might. Colleen, thanks. Hi, it's very exciting to be here. Uh, So UPR listeners will have heard your reports over, what, a couple of years you've been with us or Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I started in 2021 in the fall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of our great um, science reporters, who I think mostly are doctoral students, so we'll, get, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, and uh, we also bring in the USU Associate Professor of Biology, Noel Beckman. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, Noel Beckman, um, tell us a little bit about your background. What do you What do you study? Uh, so, I'm an ecologist, and my research mainly focuses on plant interactions with the local environment and how that influences we the patterns we see at larger scales, like patterns of diversity or where um, individuals of species are located. And then we also um, look at how global change may disrupt these interactions and what consequences this this might have. And we use a variety of different approaches to look at these questions from mathematical modeling to field research and laboratory studies like we're going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, if you're talking about diversity, then as I read from the, in the from the from the sites, uh, you'd probably want to go to somewhere tropical like this institute. Yeah. So the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute is a really wonderful place to conduct these studies because because of the high diversity of plants, and so we can really get at um, questions of how this diversity comes about and what ma- what maintains this diversity, but also it has a wealth of resources from just the history of studies that have been conducted there um, to the laboratories that are right next to the place, the, the forest that we're working in, um, and, and just the networking interactions we have with the people there, too. Hmm. Uh, so maybe we could nail this down at this, this point. Uh, why, why the importance of diversity? Why do we need that diversity? <laughs> uh, diversity is, um, I mean, it's fascinating. And it's also because if we only had one, I guess, thing of something, that would be pretty boring. Mm -hmm. Um, But also um, this diversity can influence um, the functions of ecosystems. For example, the different ways that uh, an ecosystem could respond to, like, being able to to store carbon, like with, um, with the increasing amounts of carbon dioxide or uh, management of um, wastewater um, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, Colleen Might, what, uh, first of all, um, what do you study? What are you studying? Um, so I, I study indigenous bees uh-huh. and a lot of bioinformatics regarding their DNA. And so I'm, I'm very motivated with uh, conservation biology um, through the lens of genomics, um, which is a fancy word for saying DNA 
Mm-hmm. Um, so like using DNA to assess the status of a species or to see how well they're doing in an environment. And sort of like biodiversity, we're looking at genetic diversity because that can be very helpful when we're trying to see um, how animals will respond to change, especially in a changing climate. Um, so I'm a student in the USDA Bee Lab as well as the USU Biology Department and the Ecology Center. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, working on your doctorate. Yes. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. well yeah, good luck with that. I know that's a lot of, that's a lot of work, <laughs> as you know, Professor Beckman. Um, <laughs> so um, we, we've had a, a steady stream of great doctoral students like yourself uh, do reporting for us at uh, UPR. Why, why did you want to report as well? So I, I, I have to say I was recruited by one of the old really great reporters, Ashley Rohde, who's now a postdoctoral fellow at uh, university, um, New Mexico State University, and she really enforced me to join. Um, I was actually very hesitant because I have no experience, um, but it's it really has been just such an amazing opportunity to practice science communication and to get myself involved in amazing opportunities like this and uh, to stay well-informed with the community. Mm-hmm. And I would like to say that this, it's all made possible by the Utah State University Ecology Center, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, helps fund our science reporting. And so just really uh, I'm grateful for that. And yeah. Ecology Center uh, feels it's important to, to foster science communication, right? Yes. Yeah. So, Colleen, as you, uh, do you feel that this is being on the other side here, being a reporter, feel like that'll help you with the future in your career? Absolutely. Communicating yeah. the science that you do? Yes, yeah. It, it, it's definitely not as intuitive as I think I'd like it to be. <laughs> um, but it, it's really important to be able to really understand uh, the foundations of, this, of the science involved and then to be able to translate it in a way that's more approachable to the public. Because a lot of us in this field or in, in STEM in general are so passionate and involved in what we're doing. And I think a lot of it is very interdisciplinary, and so it can be kind of hard to grasp for, for people, especially like family members. You get that glossy gaze over their eyes during the holidays, and you're explaining what you're doing and trying to make it possible for them to be also engaged in um, the kind of science that gets me excited. Hmm. Uh, Sherry, um, how did you get involved in this this project? Uh, I know you're always looking for interesting places to report from, right? Yeah. You reported from Paraguay, you get that I did, right, I uh, did. several years ago, for uh, one example. I did. I was in the in the jungle in Paraguay <laughs> with hunter-gatherers eating bugs and stuff. <laughs> um, this project, actually, UPR asked me um, to go, and Noel invited me to go to uh, the island with Colleen. And, and so, of course, uh, I jumped at the opportunity, and um, we had Colleen and I prepared for the trip for many months. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we hopped on a plane and we made it there. And um, you'll, you'll learn more about it with the stories that you're about to hear on the yeah. show today. Yeah, and wonderful. So before we talk a little bit about the, some science that was done there, um, I was privy to just some discussion behind the scenes of what you had to do to prepare to go to a tropical place like this, right? A lot of us... <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll not go to a tropical place, right? So, Sherry, you came in one day and said, well, one of the rules is you can't can't fall down. You can't. Yeah, we were originally get, uh, um, scheduled to go during the rainy season, <laughs> <laughs> and we were told not to. 
Um, if you fall down, don't touch the ground. <laughs> right. And why? <laughs> because of all of the um, parasites and... Chiggers. Chiggers, okay. Chiggers. Yeah. And I did make the mistake um, w- during the dry season when we were there. Of sit- We were also told, you know, don't sit down on the trails and the st- or the steps or anything, which I did. And, yeah. of course... The chiggers and the parasites I and the bugs. and got covered yeah. in chiggers after that. Oh, you did? Yes. You did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is not like here, right? It's it's a different place. Noel Beckman, do you, you uh, I, I guess you probably went through the same thing. Another thing that Sherry told me is uh, got to soak all my clothes in pesticide. Oh, yeah. I've, I've started buying clothes that already come ah. with um, that treatment. Yeah. So you because can buy I've clothes. Had, like, okay. Yeah. I've had... Um, Dengue fever and leishmaniasis, so um, which are some things you don't really want to get. Wow, from from being there, <laughs> from working, from also, working, yeah, there, from yeah. working yeah. in the forest, or yeah, or just being in the city. Yeah, Colleen, what was your? Tell me some things you went through to prepare. Oh, a, and when you were there, I guess. Yeah. I like bugs. Um, okay, maybe not on me, <laughs> um, but it, it was amazing. I, w- I was very excited. Um, it was. I just will say it was really great to be there with Colleen because of her background in in science and bugs, and she could identify pretty much every bug that we saw. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. nice of you. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, so Noel, back when you mentioned a couple of illnesses, puts me in mind of you know, the, just the massive illnesses when they're building the Panama Canal, I guess. Yeah. That, and you've experienced this, this firsthand now, right? That it's a very tropical place. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, tell me about, Noah Beckman, tell me a little bit about uh, some of the science that you've, you're doing there, or that you're observing there. So currently, um, so I, I worked there for a couple of decades now looking at a variety of different things, but the current and most of them are linked with my interest in how plants move. So plants move through one stage of their life, which is the seed. So plants produce fruits, and within those fruits are seeds. And there's a lot of different ways that plants have evolved to, dis- we call that seed dispersal, to disperse those seeds. One is um, like wind dispersal, like cottonwood or maple seeds. Um, but over 50% of flowering plants in the world and more than 80% of of flowering plants in the tropics are dispersed by animals. So a lot of these fruits are fleshy fruits, um, like an apple or a mango. Um, uh, And so we're, so so most of my research is is, is focused on understanding how plants move, um, what the consequences of that are, um, but then how does that come about? So in this project, we're focusing on um, the chemistry of those fruits. Um, there's been a lot of research thinking about the morphology of those fruits, so what they look like and how that affects who eats it. For example, if a fruit's too big for a certain bird, then the bird's just not going to be able to swallow it and move it around. Um, and all these animals are mutualists, so they have some, they get a benefit from the plant, which is through the nutritional value, like sugars, fats, proteins, um, but that the plant also gets a benefit by being moved away from its location where they can then escape siblings that might be competing for resources in the soil, or they might be escaping insects and pathogens that are eating those seeds and seedlings that are maybe concentrated around the parent plant. Um, So in this case, we're, so chemistry and fruits haven't been studied as much, at least in the like pulp of these fleshy fruits. Um, And we're really interested in understanding, so 
so alongside this, like plants produce a lot of different chemicals, and a lot of that is understudied and unknown. Um, and we're, we think that, that animals that are providing benefits to the plant by moving those fruits around could be one of the drivers of producing so many chemicals because these fruits, their taste, some of them are really tasty to eat. So not only are they being eaten by a bird or some other plants might be eaten by like a monkey or um, um, other mammals, um, they're also being eaten by things like insects and pathogens that are killing the seed. So these fruits want to both attract some of these animals to move their seeds, but they also want to protect the seeds from being eaten by something that's going to kill them. And so that's what our, pro our project is, first doing some baseline understanding of what are the chemicals out there, how do these, the diversity of these chemicals, um, what are the patterns across the different methods of seed dispersal, like if the plant is dispersing by wind, we expect that the diversity of chemicals in the fruit would be different by, than plants that are being dispersed by birds um, or or primates. Um, so we're first trying to document what are the patterns, how, how much diversity is out there. And then the next link, which we're starting now, is, is trying to link those patterns to how that mediates interactions with the animals. So does a higher diversity of, so we would expect that fruit dispersed by animals might have higher diversity of chemicals because they're both interacting with these animals that um, that is benefiting the plant by moving them away, but they're also interacting with these insects and pathogens and other vertebrates by, that might be killing the seed. And so, um, so the next step is to understand how that chemical diversity is linked up with these interactions. So my collaborator at Virginia Tech, Susan Whitehead, will be, is going to conduct some feeding trials by using the extracts that we get from a lot from these we've been able to work with so we're documenting patterns of 50 species, and a, we're using a subset of those, about 12 to 16 species, to document the, the, the patterns. So she'll be using the extracts that we've gotten from the seed and the pulp um, and doing feeding trials to see if bats and birds might prefer some extracts to others. So does that, and how does that link up to like how many compounds are in there? And then also doing bioassays with insects and fungi that might kill and eat the seeds, how might, does that chemical diversity have some function in better protecting the seed from being eaten? Yeah, interesting, fascinating. So this is over time, you conduct this research over, yeah, so we, over some time. We started this particular project and well, we got funding from the National Science Foundation in 2020, then the pandemic, which was in the midst of the pandemic. And so the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute was closed for a couple of years. So, um, yeah, so we weren't a actually able to start it until about 2022 to do really dig and do all the collecting that we needed to do. Um, and so we just finished collecting from the 50 species to document the patterns. And then Susan Whitehead is now starting these more eco the ecological studies to understand the, how these, the chemicals mediate the interactions with other animals. And then our other collaborator, Ray Dobzinski, We'll put all of this information that we're getting, all this data that we've been collecting into mathematical models to make predictions um, of how the plants might evolve with these different interactions. Yeah, yeah. And then that's Ray Dobzinski at Loyola yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. So it's a very interdisciplinary project, like Colleen was saying, like ecology is very interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. We're using yeah, ecological and chemistry and mathematical modeling to kind of put all this information to get to 
bigger perspective of what's happening. Yeah, let's make it fun, <laughs> that, that interdisciplinarity of it, yeah. Uh, let's take a brief break. When we come back, we'll uh, talk a little bit more, and then we'll hear this report um, that you guys have put together. Uh, we're talking with scientists and reporters who've been researching and reporting at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. Uh, the Institute's goal is to increase and diffuse knowledge about the past, present, and future of tropical biodiversity and its relevance to human welfare. And we're talking with UPR News Director Sherry Quinn, USU doctoral student and UPR science reporter Colleen Might, and uh, USU Associate Professor of Biology Noel Beckman. Um, we'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with scientists and reporters who've been researching and reporting at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. We're talking with USU Associate Professor of Biology Noel Beckman, uh, USU doctoral student and UPR science reporter Colleen Might, and UPR news director Sherry Quinn. Uh, Sherry, uh, tell us about the this island, Barro, Colorado. You're going to learn a lot about it in the story you're okay. about to hear, but um, I. I uh, will say that um, thanks to Noelle, Noelle Beckman, who wrote us into the Nas National Science Foundation, she wrote UPR interns in uh, for the portion of science communication of this project. Uh, she wrote us into the grant, which is the reason we were able to go, which um, was just a really a wonderful opportunity for the science reporters here at Utah Public Radio. And it's um, th this kind of thing doesn't happen very often, so it's a really unique opportunity, and uh, I just wanted to point that out and and um, I think Colleen can attest to the fact that um, it was a, probably a really great learning experience and a different kind of reporting than what you have been used to. Yeah I, I would say that with this project being so interdisciplinary this word we keep coming back to um, it really helps me understand just how important like science communication is because as I dove deeper to understand you know this project more because it is really out of my wheelhouse um, I got to appreciate the approach and the questions that are trying to be answered and then actually be immersed in the field was was like unbelievably incredible. Um, and that's sort of what I was trying to capture with these stories that I, uh, that I created with Sherry. So. All right. Well, let's uh, jump in and hear uh, anything, uh, Sherry, Colleen, you'd like to say before we hear the, this first piece? Buckle up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up. Well, I want to hear read from the from the uh, introduction that you, you guys prepared. We'll take you on an audio tour, you say, of one of the most heavily researched islands in the world, Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute's Bardo, Colorado Island, where howler monkeys scream, crocodiles roam, bugs bite plenty, and scientists draped in protective outdoor gear explore every inch uh, and creature on the island. So this is your behind-the-scenes pass to the world of scientific discovery. So let's hear this this first report. Noelle Beckman is an associate professor in biology in the Ecology Center at USU who studies plant ecology and seed dispersal. She uses chemistry and math as tools to understand how plants interact with predators and herbivores and to compete for resources. One huge question in evolutionary ecology is why there's such a huge diversity of chemical compounds in plants. Our project is investigating that question. We propose that fruits might be the key Beckman is the lead principal investigator of a multi-institutional project supported by the National Science Foundation. This project is focused on seedscape ecology and aims to uncover the mysteries of why there is such a rich diversity of plant chemicals that have evolved. Research for the project takes place at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute's Barro, Colorado Island in Panama, a premier study site for tropical biologists. 
this is the best studied tropical forest in the world. More tree species in a single hectare in western Amazonia than there are tree species in the eastern deciduous forest. So from the Mississippi to the Atlantic, from Georgia up into Canada, it's almost twice as many tree species in a single hectare in western Amazon. There have been now global surveys and microbial diversity in the soil in these forests is orders of magnitude higher. That is Joseph Wright, senior scientist at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama and co-principal investigator of the project. He commutes to the island from his home in the small town of Gamboa, a 40-minute boat ride. Barro, Colorado Island, or BCI, was formed when engineers dammed the Chagres River in 1914, creating Lake Gatun. After the dam was built, rising lake waters covered a significant part of the existing tropical forest, but certain hilltops remained as islands in the middle of the lake. BCI is one of those islands. Accessible only by boat, it is one of the most heavily researched tropical forests in the world. With funding from the National Science Foundation grant, Beckman sent UPR on a journey to BCI to cover their exciting research and what it is like to be immersed in their world. News director Sherry Quinn and I flew to Panama and shuttled to BCI. We traveled deep into the tropics from Logan, Utah to taking a taxi from Panama City to Gamboa, Gamboa. and then the ferry to BCI. The island, about the size of six square miles, can host up to 50 researchers and staff in housing units. There is a dining hall and two research facilities overlooking the lake and the Panama Canal. Meals are served on a schedule three times a day. Here, researchers discuss their work over these meals and plan their trips into the field to collect samples and gather data. These trips are often strenuous and require rubber boots, long socks, and bandanas. Tropical regions like Panama experience two seasons, wet and dry. Fortunately, our trip to BCI took place in March, during the dry season, where temperatures hover between 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit and 60 to 85 percent humidity. One must walk up a steep hill when arriving to BCI to access most facilities at the station. The island is home to only one vehicle, a truck whose only job is to drive up this steep hill to deliver food and potable water to the dining hall, and the occasional equipment delivery. Around the facility on the island, buildings are connected with sidewalks and stairs. This area of BCI is well-maintained from the undisturbed forest, which echoes sounds unrecognizable to those unfamiliar with the tropics. One can hardly see through this curtain of growth as plants in the understory are under constant competition for light and space. Everywhere one looks, there is a creature of some kind peeking its head from this curtain, whether it be one of the coatis, members of the raccoon family looking for scraps around the dining hall, or a goody, large rodents grazing on the grass. No matter which direction, life is everywhere, even hundreds of feet above one's head, howling at the top of its lungs or slothing around. Within the forest, designated trails travel in all directions, like a network of blood vessels branching off and connecting together. Many of these trees along the trails are tagged or flagged, evidence of just how intricately studied this forest is, catalogued and periodically measured. As one treks deeper into the island, 
It is strongly advised to wear rubber boots and separate clothes completely, ones that are treated with chemicals that repel pesky critters so tiny they are almost invisible to an untrained eye. The trails have cinder block steps embedded into them, all of which were carried and installed by hand up these steep hills. Although well shaded, the best way to describe how it feels to navigate through this island is like being in a hot sauna on a Stairmaster. Postdoctoral researcher at USU, Jerry Schneider, and key chemistry ecologist on this NSF seedscape project, greeted us at the island and guided us through the forest. It's been protected from development or exploitation for over a hundred years since being created as an island by the flooding of Lake Gatun during the setting up of the Panama Canal, even before it was set up as a protected area overseen by the Smithsonian. It was hidden and the surrounding forest are, have been protected, were designed to be protected um, because they're necessary as a watershed for the canal itself. Listen for our next episode as we dive deep into the research underway to understand the complex interactions of fruiting plants and why it is suspected to give rise to thousands of chemicals. This ongoing series is made possible by the support of this NSF project. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Colleen Might, and this is Secret Beyond the Seed. So there's the, the first report. Uh, the, the howler monkeys are featured prominently. Tell me about oh, those. <laughs> there were howler monkeys everywhere. And uh-huh. uh, as a science radio journalist, it, this was just a feast mm-hmm. <laughs> of audio and also the scientists just all over the place and their little outdoor uh Laboratory pop-up kind of laboratories in the field was just, every trail we went on. We would just see them out in, in locations throughout the forest, and um, it was just a. I was like a kid in a candy store <laughs> as a science journalist. Yeah, yeah, great sound. Noel Beckman, tell me what it's what it's like to be there. I imagine first of all, hot, be hot. Yep, it's hot and humid, um, and. Yeah, you you wake up with the howler monkeys, essentially, eat breakfast in the cafeteria with whoever else is awake and starting their day, and then go out in the field. Yeah, Um, yeah. And then come back for lunch or take your lunch out. And then, yeah, most meals are eaten in the cafeteria, or all meals are eaten in the cafeteria. There is a little common kitchen, but... um, that you can make hot cocoa, I guess, if you want, or or tea or something like that, or coffee. Um, yeah, and then the laboratories as well, and there's a little library is that you can read, and they have a little herbarium in there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Sherry, don't sit down, right? <laughs> outside, found. outside, yeah. yeah. You oh, yeah. sit down inside, even on the steps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As soon as you come back from the field, you mm-hmm. want to shower and change clothes, so ah. you don't spread ticks and shakers right. throughout the other facilities. Yeah, that's the advantage of living in a colder, drier climate, right? You cut down on the bugs. Um, so, Colleen, t- tell me what it's like to be there. It, it was incredible. That I, what I tried to capture was the sound in all directions, and, and there is sort of this, this wave of, of of humidity that hits you when you get off the plane. Um, and the culture is just so colorful and vibrant, um, and, and I, 
I think as you get closer and closer to BCI, you start to see the difference that people start loading up on the shuttle and they're all going to work or, or their local scientists going to start their day in the field. And um, it's, it's so exciting to see, like, there really truly is a curtain of vegetation between, I guess, the maintained campus area or station area and then actually, like, the forest itself. So... I, it's just incredible. Everywhere you look, there there's some sort of invertebrate climbing around, and, and every tree I saw was tagged, and so it was just very, very intricately studied. Um, and the diversity of research happening is, I mean, you, you could lose yourself for hours just talking to someone next to you having lunch mm. um, very easily. So, yeah. And I, I will say, too, there, are, um, there were spider monkeys, capuchin monkeys. Are there any other types of monkeys the howler spider and capuchin um i do have a funny story when we were heading out and mm-hmm. colleen and i were just heading out for a day in, mm-hmm. in the field with jerry i believe and uh what i thought was rain was a spider monkey up in a tree Uh-oh. <laughs> Water in the rabbits. you gotta be careful gotta be yeah careful. yeah yeah. There might be TT monkeys, but they I think they're pretty low abundances and they they're in more disturbed forests. So, but those are the yeah, three main ones that you would see on a regular basis, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um and uh, Panama is thinks, you know, relatively stable uh, politically, at least comparatively so, but at least once uh sure your trip was delayed uh, through, through protests, political yeah. protests. Yeah, originally we were scheduled to go in, actually it was July, I think, right? And mm-hmm. um, there were uh, major protests started happening uh, just before before we were scheduled to leave, and roads were blocked, and um, it was uh, getting from the airport to the hotel in Panama City into the field would have been... Um, probably delayed we would have been stuck for several days in the city so mm. we postponed our trip yeah. uh, until uh the following march yeah well, let's take another break before we hear the second report uh, from colleen uh we're talking uh about the smithsonian tropical research institute in panama we're talking with uh, usu associate professor of biology noel beckman also upr science reporter and usu doctoral student colleen might and upr news director sherry quinn we'll come back and hear another report from panama following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today on this uh, cold January day. We're taking a trip to tropical Panama uh, through the reporting of uh, Colleen Might, who's USU doctoral student and UPR science reporter. We're also talking with USU Associate Professor of Biology Noel Beckman and UPR News Director uh, Sherry Quinn. Uh, they all have uh, made uh, trips to, uh, in Noel's case, I guess extensive trips uh, to uh, this institute, the uh, Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. Um, well, let's let's hear this next uh, reporting thing you want to do to set this up. Um, so this one I, I I wrote was mainly emphasizing the the big questions regarding this project that sent me and Sherry to Panama. Um, and involving a lot, there were so many people involved in the project, and so you're going to meet lots of very fascinating scientists who all have different questions with the bigger question. Um, so hopefully everyone learns about the amazing research being done um, regarding the diverse chemicals um, involved with, with plants and seed dispersal. All uh, right. Yeah. Let's hear this. 
¿Qué es lo más loco? Ay, Dios mío, no sé. Bueno, los monos están bien locos. Un día sentí que me estaban mirando y yo... Monkeys are very crazy. Ay, she felt one day that, she, that somebody was staring at her and she looked back. And that was the monkey, white face monkey, the back of a tree in the ground. And he was looking to her like that. That's Mitzilla Gaitan, who shared a memorable experience of a curious capuchin monkey watching her collect field samples in the tropical forest of Barrow, Colorado Island. She's been a technical assistant at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute for 16 years, working on numerous projects involving plant ecology. Gaitan plays a vital role for this multi-institutional project, supported by the National Science Foundation. Hilda Castaneda, Barrow, Colorado site administrator, is translating for her. Gaitan works in the field every single day, collecting plant samples for the project. She searches for fruits and for dry leaves and also the ones that are fresh. When they bring them from the forest, they, they wake them. And then when they pass through the drying equipment, they also wake them again. And they go again to the freezer. The samples are processed by being weighed, dried, and weighed again before being sent to Carlos Rios, professor of organic chemistry at the University of Panama. When it's dry, it's easier to, to extract the, the metabolite. We have to use ethanol, to extract the metabolites better with a sample. Secondary metabolites are chemical compounds produced in specific tissues of plants. They play a variety of roles, such as repelling an insect or to attract a pollinator or seed disperser, or to warn nearby plants of enemies. Plants produce thousands of these chemicals, and we don't know why. Noel Beckman, principal investigator of this project, an associate professor in biology and the Ecology Center at USU, sees the importance in studying them. A lot of our medicine is from these compounds that we found in plants, and there's been a lot of work trying to use the ecological information that we get from studying these interactions between plants and other organisms and being able to use that to help us find novel chemical compounds that they could be used for medicinal purposes. Nature doesn't do nothing for nothing. You are doing something because something is happening. What is happening? The researchers of this project suspect that seed dispersal may be a driving force to the rise of such diverse chemical evolution. This is the crux of the mystery they are trying to solve. They believe the answer lies in the chemistry. The key aim in this is to understand the role these complex chemicals play within the different seed dispersal strategies. This project is studying 50 different species of fruiting trees, where these strategies are well documented. There are actually over 400 species of fruiting trees in this six-square-mile island. It's just uh, astonishing. Over half of all plant species live in tropical forests. We have to come here to understand nature. The big question is how can all these species coexist? We have 450 tree species. How can there be 450 tree species on this six square mile island? That's Joseph Wright, senior scientist at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama and co PI of the project. He is an expert in forest ecology, plant phenology, and conservation biology. This is part two in the series of Secret Beyond the Seed. Welcome back to Barrow, Colorado Island. In the natural world, plants evolve various mechanisms to spread their seeds. They may rely on the wind or tempt hungry mammals and birds with their succulent and colorful fruits. Fruits interact with a diversity of organisms that both consume and kill the seed, such as 
plant diseases and insects that can kill the seed, but they also interact with a lot of organisms that are beneficial for the plant, like seed dispersers such as monkeys and birds and bats that move the seed away from the plant that can increase the survival. And we think because of these diversity of interactions the fruit have, that could be driving the diversity of chemical compounds the plant has by those chemicals being able to mediate those different interactions. Susan Whitehead, associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Virginia Tech, is co-PI on this project. Fruits are in a really tough place ecologically. They need to be attractive to their seed dispersers and still defended against insects and fungal pathogens that would attack roots and damage the seeds. We think that chemistry might be really key to mediating these really complex interactions. Being such a well-documented island, this project builds off of research conducted from previous scientists who too have spent their career collecting and analyzing data while walking along the same trails. BCI is a dream location for a project like this because we have so much existing data, right? We know the main seed dispersers for all the plants, and that's not a trivial thing to figure out, like whether the seeds are dispersed mainly by birds or bats or abiotically. They also know the phenology of the plants, when they fruit and flower, when they should collect plants, their genetic information, and how they are all related to one another. That type of background is just incredible to have because it provides so much context for the data that we're collecting on the chemical traits of plants. Now we can really ask how those chemical traits relate to all of these other ecological and evolutionary factors for each of those different species. And so we can use this comparative approach to see how the chemistry changes across these species that have very different dispersal modes. Not only do they have all of this existing data, but they are able to process the samples in the field. What makes BCI unique as a fuel station is the laboratory facilities inside the field station. So you can go collect samples and half an hour later be grinding them up to do extractions. And here's the centrifuge, here's the microbalance, here's the... Rotary evaporator. Postdoctoral researcher at USU, Jerry Schneider, and key chemistry ecologist took us on a tour of the lab space they use when preparing plant samples for chemical extractions from the field. His expertise comes in handy when trying to tease apart the role these thousands of chemicals play within the dozens of species of plants this project is investigating. Residential scientist Joe Wright explains. The, the analytical chemistry is just taken off in the last decade, you can now take an extract of a plant tissue and determine the structure of every compound. And this method, the analytical chemistry, allows you to see the structure of a thousand compounds. So we're at a cusp that the chemists, not the ecologists, the chemists have got us to this point where we can suddenly deal with thousands of compounds Teasing apart the roles that these metabolites play will shed light on the mysteries of why there is such a rich diversity of chemicals in plants. Through the lens of seed dispersal strategies, it can also provide the discovery of novel chemical compounds with potential medicinal applications. Listen for UPR's continuing coverage from Barrow, Colorado Island. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Colleen Might, and this is Secret Beyond the Seed. This ongoing series is made possible by the support of the National Science Foundation. Don't go swimming. Don't hang out at the ends of the trails that go to the shore either, but the crocodiles here are more dangerous. Thank you. Oh, look at that one. <laughs>
Well, yeah, thanks for that, that report. really takes you there. So crocodiles. He's warning you about crocodiles. And Colleen, you uh, actually, we, you, she sort of ran into one. <laughs> yeah, we were, we had a really wonderful time where we got kind of lost, lost in the forest with Jerry. Uh, he was explaining some really novel um, sea dispersal strategies and how um, birds are, are more attracted to, I think, colors and, and contrasting colors, whereas like mammals are more attracted to smell and, and it's just something I was really curious about and we were kind of like walking back to the station sort of by the water and we go next to one of the boats and right on the other side of it there's this oh man it must have been probably six feet long or two meters long it was very long I just scurried right it was kind of sun bathing right on the side where the ramp is for the for the boats and scurried away really fast I managed to get a couple pictures of it in the water um and I was like, oh, wow, they are real, <laughs> and they're around. Um, and I'm sure Noel has a lot more to say about that. Yeah, <laughs> right. You, have you encountered such things? Uh, yeah. Back when? Yes, yeah. we have mm-hmm. seen yeah, crocodiles so sunbathing there on the shore by the boats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And some yeah. nests, I think. Too. It's really safe. Though. There is a, a guard there, like 24-7, who okay. um, lives there. And, Help you um, out, yeah. We just have a couple minutes, uh, two or three minutes left uh, here. I just want to look to the future. Uh, Noel Beckman, what's, uh, I guess, more research? Is that future, yeah. I guess? Yeah. Yeah, we have. Um, so with this project, we're, the next stage is to do these, um, these ecological studies to understand these interactions with birds, bats, insects, and fungi, and then the mathematical modeling. And then in the future, yeah, we'd like to continue to investigate these questions and and understand the importance of fruit in evolutionary ecology of the chemical diversity of plants and um, yeah, maybe revise some of the existing hypotheses and theories that are out there to, that have mainly focused on vegetative parts, specifically leaves, um, that only, or the leaves, their main interactions are with consumers like insects, but how can we incorporate the fruits that have both beneficial and um, antagonistic interactions with with other organisms to better yeah. integrate that into the, the theory that exists out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, good luck with that. Um, just about a minute left. Uh, Colleen, I guess for you, continuing your studies and uh, your doctorate. And yeah, this was certainly an amazing opportunity that's, again, pretty pretty unrelated to what I do, but it just goes to show that a lot of different research happening that otherwise would go unnoticed to a lot of people are it's just so incredible which is again why I have the pleasure of having a platform like this to report really interesting science I think science communication is something that isn't done enough and so it's it's amazing that I get to develop this skill again supported by Noelle and her grant and then also by the Ecology Center Um, I'm very fortunate uh, Sherry, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, I just want to say uh, congratulations and thank you to Colleen for doing such a great, great job. And um, also, Noel, thank you as well for making this all possible. It wouldn't have been possible without your support. And 
Well, thanks uh, for each of you coming in and uh, telling us about this uh, fascinating research going on. Uh, we've been talking about uh, research that's going on at Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. We've been talking with um, the USU Associate Professor of Biology, Noel Beckman. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, USU doctoral student and UPR science reporter Colleen Might. Colleen, yeah. thanks. Thank you. And uh, UPR news director Sherry Quinn, thanks. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll go out as we uh, do on uh, Tuesdays with StoryCorps. It's time again for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Logan. My name is Darren Nielsen. I'm here to interview my mother, Janine Nielsen, and my father, Brent Nielsen. Let's start with you, Mom. Tell us where you were born and when you were born. I was born in Overton, Nevada, 1944. I was born in Logan, Utah, 1942. Mom, what would be one of your favorite childhood memories? Just being able to play and run with my friends, and we could walk all over Overton because it was a very small town. And there was a ditch across the street that I loved to go swimming in with my friends, and that was my best childhood memory was just swimming in the ditch. (laughs) (laughs) Dad, how about you? Oh, a favorite childhood memory. The one thing that comes to mind is Dad liked to fish. We were running the tractors out at the mouth of Blacksmith Fort Canyon, and we would see the fish truck when it went up to plant, and Dad would say, shut them down. And we'd go home and get our fishing poles, and we'd go up the canyon and see where the tracks pulled off the side of the road, and we knew that's where they dumped fish. I remember uh, I would drive a D4 cat out farming, and I was barely old enough to be able to reach the brake pedal on the one side, pull the lever back, get the brake pedal to make it turn the corners. And I remember being uh, on the tractor awful early in life. It wasn't hard. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Okay. Well, let's transition. Can you describe the moment when you first saw or held Jill, who's your oldest child? I loved her. I've loved all my kids. And when you see them for the first time, it's really great. She was a pretty good child, but when she, when you were born, she was a little jealous, I think. And do you remember she cut your finger off in the door when you were trying? She was trying to hide, or you were trying to hide? Playing hide and seek. I have a vague memory of a door in my hand and not uh, feeling well. <laughs> yeah. But I would have been two years old or younger, probably. We had just moved into our new house. Dad, do you remember uh, the first time you held Jill, your first child? No, I don't remember the first time. All I know is the the only time that she was in the mood to have a delivery is when it was milking time to milk the cows. <laughs> That's very true. All the babies came during milking Either time. Either morning huh? or night. It didn't matter when. Do you have any funny stories about your children? Got the one that isn't too funny. It's more serious. What's that? I'm out milking the cows, and I go out to feed the cows, and I go around the end of the hay barn that's got 250 ton of hay in it, and there's Becky out there lighting matches to see if the hay burns. <laughs> <laughs> she said she didn't remember getting kicked in the rear end all the way back to the house, but I know that's what I did. I did, too, because I witnessed it. I was milking cows. <laughs> saw you leave the barn, looked out the window, and saw you holding her by her coat and kicking her with every other step, which is the first time I've seen you use corporal punishment in any way. It caught my attention, like, I wonder what she did. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to put chain locks on our doors to keep her in the house because she'd run away. And she ran away one day when I was at Relief Society, had her in the old church on 3rd South and in the nursery, and then she ran away from the nursery. 
And Lila Lee found her standing out in the middle of the road in front of her house when she went home from Relief Society. That's quite a distance. So this next question is one that's a little deeper. How did becoming a parent change you? Well, you start thinking about the future and taking care of the family. And uh, more responsibility with trying to raise children and teach them uh, what they should and shouldn't be doing. I think most parents worry about other kids. I do. Regularly, right? I worry about a couple, but I, I'm proud of them anyway. I think my kids have done pretty good. The one thing that I really enjoyed about Brent was how his family always got together for all of the holidays. and But that's the best time in my life is when my kids come to see me. Support for Logan StoryCorps comes from Cache County and from USU Credit Union, a division of Golden West.